Welcome to GRIT, the Real Estate Growth Mindset Podcast, hosted by Brian Charlesworth, founder of Sisu. Sisu provides growth automation software for real estate. You'll hear stories from real estate thought and technology leaders, team owners, and brokers on how they grew their business in a rapidly changing industry. You'll learn how to transform your brokerage and teams into a high-performing and analytics-driven business so you have a new, durable, competitive advantage against disruption in your market. So let's get right into it. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the GRIP podcast. I'm Brian Charlesworth. I'm the founder of CISU and your host of this show. And today I'm here with Mike Novak from the Novak team. And geez, I think I've known Mike for about four years now, coming up on that anyway, yep. because Zach, who is with CISU, used to be a writer for you. And when he started working for us, he was a writer for us. And I think he was a writer for both of us at the same time. Yeah. When he was in college, he was doing a lot of my ghost writing for blogs and was yeah. awesome to work with. So, yeah. And that was the exact same thing. He was doing my ghost writing for blogs as well. So nice. <laughs> now that I have him on full time, I don't have a ghost writer anymore. So and neither do I actually, <laughs> he's been a hard one to replace. Yeah. Yeah. So so anyway, Mike has a vast amount of experience with construction and all kinds of businesses like restaurants. And now he's been running a real estate team for a, quite a while. We're, we're going to dive into that. But uh, Mike, the first thing I'd like to hit on is maybe a little bit about your childhood, because I think this is something we don't see as much today where people actually learn how to work as a child. Yeah. <laughs> Our current generation has some mindset struggles that I feel like we're better handled in the 80s and 90s, you know? So what do you want to know about my childhood specifically, just how I was raised or where do you want to start? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess one of the most intriguing things to me is that you grew up climbing, you know, peaks, mountain peaks all over the world. Tell me more about that. I was, you know, kind of a chubby kid, honestly, until I was about 12 years old. And then my dad wanted to really get into mountain climbing together. And so we started just kind of like doing hikes and smaller things together And then that quickly kind of snowballed into going all in into mountain climbing. And so it was, gosh, I think it was 1997 that we really kicked off climbing pretty hardcore and started climbing a lot of our local mountains. We live out in Washington State, which has just got all of these beautiful volcano mountains out here like Mount Rainier, Mount Baker, Mount Hood. And we just started kind of taking off all those mountains here. One of the most impactful experiences I would say that I had as a child is we were doing a training climb on Mount Rainier one day in 1997 and this guy ran into us there and uh, we started talking to him more and we connected with him at a super deep level. And as we got to know him better over the next couple of days, because we were kind of staying in the same camps, we understood that he actually was a a Navy SEAL for 15 years back in Virginia beach, which a lot of people know what that means. And getting to know him better, like we got to spend about three years learning from him and mastering our craft of climbing mountains. But more important than that was kind of the mindset and the physical preparation this guy put into what he was doing. And that was super impactful. Like my dad kind of took a step back at that point and let this guy kind of take point on that. And some of it was intense. Like I'd be sitting around, you know, eating my cheeseburger and he'd punch me in the face, you know, and there'd be a fight that goes right after that. And that was just kind of part of the experience of being raised by a Navy SEAL, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. If that happened today, you know, he'd be arrested, right? I wouldn't trade those experiences for anything though. Yeah. Yeah. I totally get it. So how many peaks have you climbed and what are some of the, I know you've traveled throughout Europe climbing peaks as well. Yeah. I mean, we started, you know, with kind of Washington, Oregon, California, 
and then uh, in 1999, we went to Europe and did like Mont Blanc. We did the Eiger. We did the Matterhorn, kind of the classic mountains over there. So I was 14 years old when we were doing that. And then we took it kind of up another notch and went to Denali in 2001 and 2002, which is, you know, Mount McKinley up in Alaska, the coldest mountain on the planet, kind of a hellhole of a place to go. And then Bolivia, Peru, Russia as well. Wow. So, yeah. Wow. The only place I haven't really been is the Himalaya. You know? So, wow. so is that on your bucket list? I mean, I kind of got out of it in 2004. Like my dad became kind of disinterested around 2002 as he got older. He just wasn't as into it anymore. He felt like it was too abusive on his body. And so I kept going for a couple more years on my own. But in 2004, I discovered extreme whitewater kayaking. And that kind of took over that adrenaline rush that I was getting from climbing. I focused on that for two or three years at that point. Are you still doing kayaking? No, I wouldn't be married if I was still kayaking. (laughs) (laughs) I met my wife, Rachel. We've been married for 15 years and uh, together for 17 and I met her when I was whitewater kayaking and she basically said, Hey, that's not going to work. If we're going to grow a family. <laughs> whitewater kayaking is awesome. Like the places you can see the bonds you can form with other people, uh, your brothers that you're kayaking with are really cool. But oftentimes at the extreme edge of kayaking, you're one stroke away from killing yourself, you know? Yeah. So that's like literally the definition of class five kayaking. You know? Yeah. That stuff is intense. That is it, it happens fast. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, good. Oh, I'm glad you survived that. And so, you know, this podcast is called Grit. Is that grit that I see on your wall over there? It sure is. Yeah, <laughs> check that out. Okay, so what is it? Obviously, you have a tie to grit. What is your tie to grit? I mean, grit is something that I've just been, it's kind of gotten instilled in me as a climber, to be honest with you. You know what I mean? Like, it's something that if I look back on my climbing background, that's probably my biggest thing I got out of it was the ability to push through tough times, setbacks, times where you don't think you're going to be able to push through and win and still get the job done. You know, like mountain climbing is very good at teaching you lessons that carry into the larger part of your life. And a lot of those lessons of resiliency and grit, you know, I definitely learned climbing mountains. It's very like, just to give you an example, like if you're looking up at Mount Rainier and you're 5,000 feet, you got, you know, this just kind of this unimaginably large challenge that's up in front of you of like, you know, another 9,000 feet to climb. But if you just kind of break it down to micro steps, you're just putting one foot in front of the other and turning your brain off until you get there. You know what I mean? So just kind of compartmentalization and things like that were paramount lessons that I learned that carried into business from climbing. How much of the climbing is actually climbing, like hiking with your feet and how much is with your hands? It depends how extreme you want to go. Like we were doing big mountain climbing. And so like, if you go climb Mount Rainier on the easiest route, you will use your hands maybe for 5% of it. If you go climb Mount Rainier up like a route like Liberty Ridge, like, which is one of the more classic hard climbs, you're going to use your hands 50, 60% of it. Okay. And you've done both? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Very exciting. So I have a friend that I drive with here that has spent his last week in Europe and I guess I should say Switzerland, maybe a little bit France, but he hiked over a hundred miles of mountains. Oh my God. (laughs) Just like every day they were on a new mountain. Yeah. uh, They would end up in a new city, just backpacking, you know, just super European mountains are really different than over here. Like a lot of the European mountains are fairly steep. 
And so there's a lot more hand movement there. Like the Matterhorn, for instance, is not really that difficult of a climb, but on the summit day of the Matterhorn, your hands are engaged the entire time. You know? Yeah. I've been up every chairlift around the Matterhorn, but I can't say I've climbed a Matterhorn. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, when you look at the ridge, like head on, it looks really, really steep, but you get on and it's like 40 or 50 degrees, which yeah. is still steep enough to need your hands. You know? Yeah. Cool. Well, that's a great experience. So you went from that to, didn't you get in, jump into the restaurant business for a while? Well, first, so when I graduated high school, my dad was a builder and I got into the building industry first with him. And that turned into real estate development pretty quick as well, building condominium projects and a lot of single family houses. I did that from 2003 to 2008. In 2008, when the recession set in, our company had major issues and setbacks like most builders did. And I was out of it at that point. I lost almost $7 million in 2008 of my own personal cash and holdings that I had. So I was like, I literally had a net worth of about $8 million when I was 21 years old. I lost all of that in the 2008 crash. So that put me into the restaurant industry. We had acquired a restaurant, my wife and I, in 2007 as just kind of a side investment for you know, just diversifying our assets. We're just passive owners of this restaurant company. But after the recession hit in 2008, that restaurant company is the only thing we had left. And it was just a single location. It was just like a bar and grill kind of concept. And we leaned into that single location. And then we grew it into seven locations from 2008 all the way to 2017 and 425 employees. So it, it got pretty big pretty quick and was doing about 17 million a year, 18 million a year in, in volume. Okay. So again, you and I have both been knocked down and I would say most entrepreneurs have been knocked down, right? You get up and that's part of it. Right. So, so when that happens, it's how are you going to respond? So how did you guys end up getting into real estate? In 2016, I don't want to go political here, but in 2016, they passed a minimum wage change in Washington state that I felt was going to be the nail in the coffin for the restaurant industry. The restaurant industry is a lot of problems in Washington state. And I felt like that was going to push it over the edge. I did the math and, you know, with where they pushed minimum wage to, it was $15 an hour. It was a raise from $9 an hour. I didn't think that consumers would adapt their purchasing behavior quick enough for us to be able to raise prices and still make money. And I was correct. We ended up losing $50,000 a month the first month that went into action. And the flow of people coming into restaurants dropped off significantly as well because people couldn't afford to go out to eat at that point if you had raised prices. So that November of 2016, I looked at Rachel and I said, my wife, and I said, we're in deep shit and I need to go get my real estate license and go make sure that we've got a backup plan because I don't think our restaurant company is going to be here in four or five months. The numbers don't work. And I don't think this is going to be something that lasts. And that's ultimately how we got into real estate. Okay. So that was 2016, you say? Yeah. November 2016 is when I passed my real estate test. Okay. Okay. So still not even six years in the business yet. Yep. Okay, cool. Well, I think that's part of what makes you successful here in real estate, Mike, is you come from outside of the industry and have all these other business experiences. And a lot of people don't have all those business experiences. So very interesting stuff. So tell me, what is your thought on where the industry is today? The real estate industry? Yeah. What's happening? I mean, I think that there's a lot of changes happening. I think that a lot of brokerages are probably going to be gone in the next five years. I think the EXP model really moved the cheese for agents. 
and for brokerages. And, and a lot of people have gone to that cloud model. You know, real brokerage, which uh, you know your wife's a part of, we're a part of, um, has showed up as kind of a second player in that market. I think there's still room for a third and a fourth player as well. So I think that may be one of the biggest shifts that's going on. The other big shift that started, you know, 15 years ago is really the shift to separate people that were traditional old school agents to people that have mastered marketing. Like people that have mastered marketing are going to continue to win at a super disproportionately high level, in my opinion, over the next five years. Like if you understand marketing, if you understand lead generation and lead conversion, you will go so much further than somebody that just is going to go sit in open house as an example. You know? Yeah. You talked about the traditional brokerage going away. And when I say traditional brokerage, I think of a brokerage that doesn't operate like a team. Like there are tons of brokerages that aren't at real, aren't at EXP that I think are going to be around for a long, long time because these guys are doing like 3000 homes a year. Do you mean you like the, the team ridge, like the Gary yeah. of the world? Yeah. yeah. They, uh, they're, yeah. they're not going anywhere. Yep. Yep. So I guess my thought around that is if you're a broker owner, you need to start running your business like a team. Yeah. Or you're in trouble. Yeah. And I think that goes true. I think that holds true for solo agents as well. The solo agents that's in one of those brokerage that doesn't run like a team, they're in trouble unless they are like the marketer or the high power listing agent like you're talking about. Right. And the, the shifting market is exposing people super fast. Like we are seeing agents dropping out left and right. We are seeing a disproportionate amount of market share that's opening up. Like we just signed three new construction communities on our team that were originally going to different agents and the builders pulled them from those people and went with us just because of our reputation. So the shift is happening in real time right now. Yeah, I I totally agree. It started about 90 days ago from my perspective. So, okay. So talking about your real estate business, right before this call, you mentioned to me that you have decided instead of having five power agents doing, I don't know how many homes, 50 homes each or something, which is what power agents do, right? Right. You've decided you're going to start recruiting and start building a larger team. So what does that look like to you? When you think of that vision, what what is that? Well, so I did this wrong before. In 2019, I stepped out of production. I was out of production completely already. And we had 20 agents on our team. And we had hired super fast and loose without going really deep yet. And so we backed that up and we went back down to our core five agents. I went back into production and we implemented the micro team model, which means a showing partner assigned to buyer agents, a listing partner assigned to listing agents. And that was really helpful for our business. Like my personal production, I'm our highest producer on our team and it provides a lot of cash flow to continue to grow our team and also just for our, our personal income as well. And that really fueled our growth over the next couple of years. So as we've gone really deep, we've realized that we need to add some width or we're going to be exposed as a company. Like if one agent, God forbid, something happened to them, like they get hit by a bus tomorrow, we would have a huge gap in our business right now. Uh, One of our top agents, you know, his father passed away, unfortunately, in Q4 of last year. And because of that, he wasn't, you know, really fully engaged, which you can completely understand. And that really affected our team's bottom line. That made me realize that we need to go wide now that we've gone deep. So we added a director of growth to our team whose sole job is to recruit, attract, hire, onboard coach, agents, and ISAs to our team. And he's done a fantastic job already. He's been in his role for about two months. He's been on our team for three years. He's already added five people. Okay, awesome. If you've been enjoying Grit, please help us continue to grow the channel by leaving a five-star review and sharing it with a friend. 
Now back to Grip. So you should, I know Zach is running a webinar here. I'm already registered for it. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, I was going to say, I think the timing is crucial for that because now is the time that you're going to have a lot of these agents looking for a place to land. Yeah, this is yeah. the best hiring market we've seen in five years. Yeah, totally agree. It is. So take advantage of it, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Exciting. Well, I do remember the time when you were saying to me, hey, I'm going to burn the walls down of our business. And that was when you had your 20 agents and you were like backing it back down. Yeah. So now you're scaling it back up and it sounds like you have put a lot of systems in place. So what are those systems that you have in place to be able to scale this back up? The most important one probably is like the most important difference is our hiring process. Like we hire pretty cautiously and pretty slow and we used to hire super fast. Like basically if somebody could fog a mirror, then we were going to bring them on as an agent on our team. But we work with Eric Hatch really closely. He's been our coach since 2019. He helped kind of map out that transition from having a ton of agents to being a small, powerful team. And, you know, he's really instilled in us a really slow and methodical hiring process to apply to agents so that we hopefully make better hires. So the hiring one is a big part of it. The onboarding is another big part of it. Having a who directing it is also important. Like, I don't have the bandwidth and the capacity or the natural talent to be the recruiter or the trainer. Like, that's not what brings me joy. What brings me joy is selling a lot of houses and leading our people. But the day-to-day management of it is not something I love. So having the right person driving the process is a super important part of it as well. And then, of course, having a fully operational ISA department too. Like, we've got three full-time ISAs now. And that provides a lot of leverage for our agents. They can just focus on fulfillment instead of trying to be an ISA and an agent at the same time. Okay. So, so you talk about this, who this recruiting, who you have this is, do you have one ISA that leads your ISA team or how? I do. Yeah. I have a a lead ISA. Okay. So you have this ISA team, you've surrounded yourself with this lead ISA. What about operations? Who manages the operations on your team? So we're adding a director of operations, again, a key who, you know, like right now we've got a handful of admin people that report to my wife and it's just kind of bogged her down. So we are adding a full-time director of operations over the next 30 to 60 days. Like we're actively interviewing people right now for that position, but that person in our world is going to be the person that runs the day-to-day of the business, you know? Yeah. Yep. So two years ago, Spring brought in a director of sales and a director of ops and it's totally totally changed our world. So yeah, you just like, you need that leverage. If you're going to scale, you can't do all of it yourself. You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. So do you have your ops person in mind? Or are you looking? I have one person that we're, we're pretty convinced is the right one, but you know, until it's final, I don't know for sure. We're still actively interviewing other people just in case. All right, good. I've seen a lot of people have great success by bringing those people in from outside of the real estate industry. So, yeah, I mean, we all try to like promote from within as much as we can, but to me, that's like an executive skill set kind of position and it can be really hard to home grow those skills, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. TCs, TCs do a great job at being a TC. In many cases, they have a hard time converting up to being that director of ops, right? Yeah. They have a hard time leading other people. And oftentimes they also have a hard time kind of just running with things like they need a lot of oversight or guidance. And we need someone that's just going to drive that whole part of our business yeah. and, and check in with them weekly. And that's about it. You know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Very exciting. So what are you most excited about in this coming year with this shift? I don't think I could be more excited right now. You know, we were in park city at the Hatch mastermind in June and Eric gave a presentation about 
being a wartime CEO versus being a peacetime CEO and that we're heading into war right now. It's time to shift how you lead your people. I feel like I'm conditioned for chaos. I think my wife is as well. And I love it when things get tough. So I feel like this is just ripe with opportunity. Like I said, I think the hiring is going to be an opportunity that we've never seen before over the next 12 to 24 months. So I'm very excited about that. I'm also really excited to take the couple of like core agents we've had over the last five years and help them just really build a huge, robust business. You know, they have the potential to sell 80 to 100 houses as they scale their micro teams. And then, of course, adding a lot of agents. You know, our goal is to add three more agents this year and then 10 agents next year. So we have a lot of hiring plans. Yes. Okay. First, next time you're in Utah, you need to let me know so I can take you out for a good time. Uh, I I was talking to Zach, but you guys were gone that time we were over there, but next time for sure. Okay. The other thing is, you know, as you guys are scaling this up and, you know, you're making these changes and you're doing all this stuff, you have these five agents that it appears have been with you now for five years. Yeah. Right since our team started. What have you done to keep these guys around? Because, you know, I, I remember... Back when I first got in the real estate industry, teams had an impossible time keeping agents around for more than two years. Yeah, no, a lot of teams struggle with it. There's a lot of things that I think we've done well to keep people like that on our team and in our world. The biggest thing we've done is help them build a runway for growing a team within a team. You know what I mean? Like I try to make sure that our vision is so large that it's got plenty of room for their vision as well, and that it can encompass all of that. And so I typically will lead by example, like for instance, the showing partner model, no one believed the showing partner model would work because they didn't think people would want to see houses with anyone but you. So I went out and proved to our team first myself that this model does work and then shared it with my top agents who now all have showing partners, of course. And now they're all planning to hire a second partner. So a lot of it is testing things on myself and then sharing with them how they could also implement that. And then they follow suit on it and run with it as well. But I've been able to take these guys from selling like five to 10 homes up to selling 50 to 60 houses and creating massive wealth for them. The other big thing, I don't think that everything should be fair and equal. So they disproportionately make more money. Like after what we did is we basically created two agent roles on our team. We have a team agent, which is an agent that sold less than hundred homes on our year. And we have an elite agent who sold hundred plus homes. Once you've sold hundred plus homes, you make a lot more money in our world. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So I I think that's crucial. You said something that I think is so, so spot on. And I think Spring's done an amazing job of this as well. She has a bunch of agents that have been with her for four or five years. And it's because they have an opportunity to grow within the organization, right? There's no reason for them to leave, right? So I think it's really important that everybody make sure that there are opportunities for these top agents to level up and be able to lead others to be able to grow an organization within your organization. And what that really means is in order for you to create that kind of atmosphere, who do you need to become as a leader? What shifts have you had to make, Mike, to, to be able to engage them to be able to do that? I've had to change my leadership style a lot over the last five or six years. I've had to invest a lot into developing myself, going to a lot of different masterminds, getting in front of a lot of different people that are smarter than I am so that I understand the best ways to do things in our business. So I have to, like you're saying, I have to continually make my skill set and my mindset better and improving so I can better lead my people and be challenging them with things that I know are going to work. Yeah. So, okay. If you were to give advice to our listeners, which I think are mostly business owners slash team leaders, 
what would that be like for the next 12 months? What is an absolute must do for the next 12 months? I would say play to win, don't play to survive. I think if you play to survive, you're not going to be taking the kind of risks to get the opportunities you need to actually like have an amazing business. I think there's going to be so much opportunity, but you have to step outside of your comfort zone a little bit and you have to play to win. Playing to survive is not going to go well for anybody. Like you got people pulling back lead spend as an example all over the place. Like I talked to my Zillow rep the other day and he's like, people are canceling their accounts left and right. Well, guess what I'm doing with Zillow? I'm negotiating more leads. You know what I mean? And I know the prices are going on sale. So I think leaning into your business, being willing to take a little bit of risk, knowing that you can absolutely crush it over the next 12, 24 months is the path to success. Okay. I agree with you. Do you have any other examples of the difference in those two? Uh, You shared one, which is spending more on leads instead of pulling out on leads. Investing in people would be the other big one. Like you need to be really 12 months ahead on your support staff and also on your agents of where your goals are at. Like it takes agents about six months to start producing consistently. And so being far in advance of that and not waiting until you actually have an urgent need to hire is going to be super important. So as the leader, as the visionary, you have to think about where you're going to be at in two or three years and be starting to think about those key hires now to get there. We're not thinking about how to make money in 2022 or thinking about how to create generational wealth in 2025 right now. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's a, it's a really, really solid point. If you don't bring the people into your business today, that can get you to that next level. You won't get to that next level. Yeah. A lot of times we think, Oh, we'll just kind of add employees as we grow. Well, you need people to actually help take you to that next level. Yeah. I think if you do it that way, you end up hitting the glass ceiling a lot and you feel like you're never going to break through it. And then yeah. when, you, when you add in the right person, the right who, you just shatter that glass ceiling almost immediately. You know what I mean? Like we hadn't hired anyone on our team for two years, hire the director of growth. He gets five hires in a month. Like that's an example. Yeah. That's a great example. So you tell me, I think you said you were going to hire, did you say three people this year and 10 three next? more agents? One more ISA. So we have a four person ISA team and then 10 more agents next year. Okay. So question I have for you, this person came in, they've already hired five agents. Why only three more this year? Do you want to put a ceiling on them? I just don't want to go so fast that we don't have time to properly get people up to speed on their business. Like we don't, we don't need to add agents for bottom line profitability. You know, I want the current agents I have to be very successful and I just want to go slower than what I've gone before. Like in 2019, again, I added a lot of agents really fast. And I'd rather go a little bit more cautious and slow and make sure that we're getting the right people. Like the culture fit to us is super important. I feel like we're risking our culture with every hire that we add to the team. And so making sure it's the right fit is super important to us. Okay. So what do you do to make sure these people are a culture fit? What are you doing for onboarding these agents? It starts way before the onboarding. It starts in the hiring process. So one of the key things I've done is I've removed myself from our hiring panel. Like I sit in the room, but I don't drive any of it. I've got my key leaders that have final say on who gets added to the team. I will share my thoughts if they ask me, but ultimately I have decided that it's better if these people determine who should be brought into our culture versus me telling them that it should be brought into our culture. That's probably the most important one. The other one is getting to know who that applicant is connected to. Like who is their spouse? 
does that spouse support this person's ambitions? So we often will meet the person's spouse, just have like a casual happy hour with them and the department they're considering joining, whether it's ISA department or age department, before we consider bringing them on the team. So we understand their holistic life beyond just real estate. Like what does home life look for you? What do you go home to? Is your partner really on board with what you're telling us they're on board with? Or is there a mismatch there as well? So it, it really starts way before the onboarding. It starts in the hiring process to me. Okay. I think that's really key that their spouse supports them. I think it's a great idea. Maybe you could expand on that though, just for our listeners. Like, why is that so important in real estate? (laughs) I think oftentimes people will tell you that their spouse is on board and they're okay with this person being gone till eight o'clock at night sometimes, which is the lifestyle that we subscribe to in real estate. Sometimes it's not like a permanent condition, but it is a season often as you're building And sometimes the spouses really aren't okay with that and they may have not communicated together. And so it's kind of nice when you sit down with both of them and this is not like an interrogative interview from when it's just sitting around having a beer with them and asking, you know, how are you planning to support your spouse as they grow their business, knowing there could be some long nights and weekends and just listening to what they say, you know, and and seeing if that actually matches to what the person told us. Sometimes there's a mismatch there and the person that's trying to get hired doesn't even know it yet. Right. Okay. Something that I seem to have observed in you from afar, I believe you have a morning routine. Is that correct? (laughs) I'm very ritualistic in that. Yes. I have a certain process I follow every morning or at least Monday through Friday. Can you share that with us? Yeah. I mean, I get up at three in the morning. I have two buddies of mine, Colton Whitney and Mike Rollander are both clients of yours as well. And we Marco Polo each other at three o'clock. If you don't check in by three o'clock, you owe the other people 50 bucks. So we have some immediate accountability to it, but I get up early and then I sit around with my dog for about 15, 20 minutes. I drink my coffee. I do my affirmations and my gratitude every morning. And then I hop in the car and I drive to the gym around 3.30. I get to the gym. I work out with some of my buddies at four o'clock around 5.15. I come back home. I get all my stuff ready for the day. And then I'm typically in the office by about seven, 7.30. And so I try to get a lot of my work done before our people start showing up to the office so I'm just kind of ahead of the day, but that is really my routine. Like, I don't like to wait till the afternoon to work out. I feel if I work, if I wait till then, it just gets pushed off because things come up. So just getting up early has been key for me. Yeah. Three o'clock is early. So <laughs> that's a great routine. I appreciate you sharing that with us. What time do you have to go to bed in order to do that? I'm typically in bed by nine, nine thirty. Like okay. lights out at nine thirty, pretty hard. I have a bedtime alarm that goes off at nine thirty, telling me that hey, it's time to shut it down, and go to sleep. And this sounds really ridiculous in metro, but I use a sleep mask to make sure I actually fall asleep really quick. <laughs> huh, awesome. Okay. Does your wife go to bed uh, at nine nine thirty as well? She does. Yeah, she gets up at three thirty, and she's in the gym by four thirty, so she's right behind me. Okay. Okay. I love it. Thank you for sharing that. So as far as learning goes, Mike, like what's your favorite source of learning? Do you read a lot of books? Do you listen to a bunch of podcasts? Do you go to, I know you have personal coaches that you hire, but what works best for you? Coaching has been the highest return on investment of anything I've ever spent money on. You know, I've had some less successful coaching relationships, but I feel like when you get it right, like you as the person that's showing up to get coached are showing up in a place you're ready to learn and you get the right coach that's ready to teach you and has actually been where you're trying to go. That's where magic really happens. I've had that with Eric. I had that with another coach as well. And that's been really powerful for me. And that is definitely the key reason why we've grown as fast as we have in six years is because of the level of coaching we've had. I've had a coach in real estate since day one. I still have a coach. I'm probably going to always have a coach just because I want that accountability. I want that sounding board. I want that co-pilot in my business. 
and that's been massive for me. The other big one is masterminds. Like I believe in getting in the room with people that are smarter than me. And so we participate in the Hatch Mastermind and one other private mastermind as well. And where we meet two or three times a year, we travel together and we talk about life and business and learn from one another. And that's where I've learned most stuff. I don't listen to podcasts. It's too time consuming. Like I can't listen to something for 90 minutes or two hours. Like I told you before we got on, I like bursts of information. I will read a book or two at a time as well. I typically listen to it on Audible when I'm doing cardio, just plugging it out of the treadmill. So I use my time better. But coaching and masterminds has been massive for us. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Mike. I really appreciate you being on the show today and appreciate it's been fun to watch you grow from a CSU perspective with you being a, I think you were probably one of our first 10 customers coming into our. It's, it's been awesome to watch you guys as growth and have a front row seat to it. Like we, we love your product. Our team loves it. I talk about it to people all the time. Whenever I'm speaking, I always try to mention CSU and how tracking your numbers is so important. And we came from CTE and there was no solution for this problem other than them until you guys came around and it just like changed the game for analytics and real estate in my opinion. So it's an incredible product and it just gets better. Like your guys' development pace has been nothing short of impressive. Thank you. We work very hard at that. We feel like it's our biggest strength. So you guys are awesome at it. You listen to people and you implement things that make sense. Well, again, we're grateful to have you as a customer, grateful to have you on the podcast today. And for all of you listeners, go check out and see some of the things that Mike's doing because he's really doing some unique things. So Mike, if somebody wants to get a hold of you, what's the best way to do that? Send me a message on Facebook or on Instagram is typically the best way to reach out. And then we can connect from there and take things on the market pool at that point. Okay. Okay, everyone. Mike Novak from the Novak team. Thanks again, Mike. We'll catch you soon. Yeah, Brian. Thanks for having me on, brother. Yeah, we'll see you. All right. Thank you for joining us on our podcast. If you have an interest in a free seven-day trial of Sisu, go to sisu.co, S-I-S-U dot C-O. Make sure that you use the coupon code GRIT, that's G-R-I-T, to waive all your setup fees and receive a 10% discount on your subscription. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast and want to subscribe, search GRIT, the real estate growth mindset on iTunes, Spotify, or Podbean. And with that, we'll catch you next time. Take care.